Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the NCHD Paramedic Podcast. On a past episode, we discussed the top 10 most common medications seen in the pre-hospital setting. This has been a favorite of, of the listeners out there. It's in the top three most listened to episodes. But I felt like even as we were recording it and releasing it, there was a missing piece to that podcast as far as the medications that we deal with in an emergency setting. And that's not the top 10 most common, but the most impactful medications. And I feel like the most impactful medication group was left off that list, and those are anticoagulants and antiplatelets. They may not be the most common, but when our patients are on them, risk factors from multiple directions go way up. So why do we care? Well, literature is limited in this area. There's not a lot of data on paramedic recognition of these medications. There was a recent pre-hospital emergency care study that suggested that Paramedics and uh, pre-hospital folks do a good job of recognizing Coumadin or Warfarin, but a lousy job with the others. And this makes sense. There's new drugs, tough names, uh, sleep-inducing pharmacology. So all reasons why, yeah, we're familiar with aspirin, we're kind of familiar with Plavix, we know Coumadin and Warfarin, but these new drugs, names are too big, not sure where they act. Didn't learn those as we were, you know, training on the job. They're not, they're not meds we use on the truck. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of these newer medications and also some reasons why these medicines, again, may not be the most common medications we see in the pre-hospital setting, but in my opinion, they're definitely the most impactful. Joining me today to talk about this is our cardiac coordinator here at MCHD, Brad Ward. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Patrick, start off with the basics, uh, only if you promise not to talk about the clotting cascade too much, but how do we clot? Why do we clot? Okay, so no clotting cascade discussion. If you want to sleep tonight and you want to skip your Tylenol PM or your Ambien, then Google image up uh, clotting cascade, and you will, if you're like me, you'll be asleep in about five minutes. I think I slept through this each time the slide was popped up on the board during med school and, and residency. So, let's Let's cut to the chase. You know, the details really aren't important here, but a general idea about where these meds work allows us to know what to expect when patients are taking them. So what does it take to form a clot? Two actions have to happen. So first off, fibrin has to clot link, cross link, number one. Number two, platelet plug has to form. So fibrin cross-linking, platelet plug. If those two things don't happen, then the clot is not stable, doesn't happen. So if you want to fall asleep, you can look at the clotting cascade. The clotting cascade really is made up of three pathways, the intrinsic, the extrinsic, which meet and lead to the common pathway. Again, the end product is fibrin cross-linking. That's important because the platelet plug has to have a scaffolding, has to have, basically, that's the material that holds the platelet plug together. We won't go any more into intrinsic and extrinsic pathway other than to say the intrinsic pathway requires internal activation. The extrinsic pathway requires external activation. In other words, some external trauma or vascular disruption. The intrinsic pathway is tested by PTT, or par partial thromboplastin time. The extrinsic pathway is tested by the prothrombin time, or more commonly the international normalized ratio, or the INR. So again, details aren't important, but know that if you don't get fibrin cross-linking, if you don't get platelet plug formation, you don't get a solid clot formation. 
Okay, so if we get a hold of a med list or the patient tells us they're on one of these medicines, what does that tell us about their condition? So this is really the, the gist of the point of the podcast for me, Brad, and that is when we see these medicines, we have to assume the patients have certain disease processes. And from an antiplatelet and an anticoagulant standpoint, we can really narrow these down to just a couple. If a patient is on antiplatelets, we have to assume that they either have a TIA stroke risk or they've had cardiac stents or some other peripheral vascular disease. So if someone's on clopidogrel or Plavix, they're a vasculopath. So ischemic limb, stroke, TIA, cardiac ischemia all have to be high on your radar. As far as full anticoagulation, the reasons why people are fully anticoagulated really fall into three main categories. That's atrial dysrhythmias for stroke prevention, right? If your atria and your ventricles don't communicate, you can have turbulent flow in the atria and ventricles and clots can form on the heart wall. Clots form on the internal heart wall. What happens? Those clots can be flipped off into the cerebral vascular circulation, and stroke can occur. So atrial dysrhythmia is number one for anticoagulation. DVT-PE prevention, number two. Number three, much, much less common, but worth mentioning, and that's mechanical heart valves. So if you see antiplatelets, think TIA stroke or stents. If you see anticoagulation, think dysrhythmias, DVT-PE, or mechanical heart valves. So when we see those on the list, we just should just assume and ask our questions based on them having those medical problems. If they're on any of these medications, the second viewpoint we have to take when we see these is that they are at marked increase for both GI bleed and subdural hematoma. So if a patient presents weak, dizzy, hypotensive, pale, and you see one of these medications, any of these on their list, think about GI bleed. If they're altered, if they've had any minor head injury, they're at much, much increased risk of subdural hematoma. So don't blow off the, I rolled out of bed and hit my head on the nightstand. I knocked my head on the cabinet. Any of those can be subdural in these patients. So, and, and as far as the bleeding risk goes between the two groups, your bleeding risk is going to be higher in the anticoagulant group as opposed to the antiplatelet group, but treat them the same from a concern standpoint. If you see any of these medications, you should be concerned for bleeding head and gut. So we mentioned two classes of medications, anticoagulants and antiplatelets. Let's start with antiplatelets. So let's run through the meds individually so we recognize the names, not bore us to death too much with pharmacology here. But for the first antiplatelet medication, we know, don't have to spend too much time, that's aspirin. Use it every day on the trucks. We know it decreases mortality in our STEMI patients. How does it act? It acts directly on cyclooxygenase. It's a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. And by inhibiting COX, it decreases platelet plug formation. The second on the list of antiplatelets is going to be clopidogrel or Plavix. It also decreases platelet plug formation. It's an ADP receptor blocker. So slightly different mechanism at getting to that final endpoint of making those platelets slippery. When we see Plavix or clopidogrel, Again, the important part is not, not knowing the pharmacology. It's knowing that patient probably has stents or some vascular disease increased risks. There are a couple new antiplatelets worth mentioning just for recognition's sake only. Those are Berlenta and Effient. I'm going to try my hand at their generics. Berlenta is Ticreglior and Effient is uh, Prasergel. Don't ask me to do those again because I'll screw them up. Both of those are ADP receptor blockers similar to Plavix couple of historical notes, ticlidipine or ticlid and dipyramidal aspirin combo, which is trade name Agronox, are older antiplatelet medications that we won't see very often. Ones I learned back in med school at the turn of, turn of the century uh, that our folks listening today probably will only see in history books. 
So what's the plain English wrap up here for the antiplatelets is the platelets must activate and bind to form that plug. And these medications all stop the plug formation at various steps, AKA no scab. So moving on into anticoagulants up until, you know, 10 years or so ago, seven years even, this was an easy conversation because it was just Coumadin and warfarin. Coumadin and warfarin are the same drug, uh, mostly used for, again, atrial dysrhythmias, DVT-PE, mechanical heart valve, and Coumadin and warfarin prevents the liver from making clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Why is 2, 7, 9, and 10 important? 2, 7, 9, and 10 are all vital in the extrinsic pathway of fibrin cross-linking. So we test that with PT or INR. And the downside to Coumadin is easy to see in clinical practice. These patients, number one, required to undergo INR testing every two weeks, every month, depending, because it is very, Coumadin is very, very sensitive to other drugs that you may take, to dietary uh, ingestions, and that's because it's very reliant on cytochrome P450 enzymatic activity. And a wind from the southwest at eight miles an hour can cause someone's INR to increase. I mean, very, very sensitive to, to everything. So pharmacologists said, well, we can do better than this. This, this medication requires you know, biweekly, monthly testing. Every time the patient takes in a salad or a new antibiotic or some other blood pressure medication, their INR skyrockets. Can't we get a medication that the patient can take every day that's not influenced by diet, by other drugs, by everything they're doing, doesn't require this constant INR testing? And this is where the new oral anticoagulants, novel oral anticoagulants came in. And these were released, you know, seven, 10 years ago. Since they're not very new anymore, the acronym has changed from NOAC to DOAC, the direct oral anticoagulants. And why are they called direct? They're direct because they act on direct factors as opposed to prevent prevention of the liver from making 2, 7, 9, and 10 like Coumadin, they act either on factor 10A or thrombin. And there's three medications we need to know here. Number one, apixaban. Number two, rivaroxaban. Number three, dabigatran. And our those are our generics. And the generics give us a clue. Apixaban and rivaroxaban both have an X in the name, so they act on factor 10A directly. Whereas dabigatran has a T in its name, and it's a direct thrombin blocker. But both 10A and thrombin are factors in the common pathway. So there's no reliable quick test for these medications. That's a little bit of the downside. Someone's on apixaban, rivaroxaban, or dabigatran. We can't test an INR to check their coagulation status like we can with Coumadin. So a little bit of a downside. And as far as reversal goes, it gets a little more complicated with the with the DOACs as well. Coumadin reversal was pretty easy two-prong attack. Vitamin K was given to allow the liver to begin making 2, 7, 9, and 10 again. FFP was given at the same time to replace 2, 7, 9, and 10. Whereas reversal of DOAC, three-factor, four-factor protein concentrate, K-Centra, there's, there's drugs in the work that are direct blockers of these medications or inhibitors. They're very expensive and not been shown to work very well. So the jury's still out here on, on DOAC reversal. But just remember the important part when you see Coumadin, when you see Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, the Bigotran, high bleeding risk for patients on these medications. It should be an enormous red flag in alter patients, 
bleeding patients. If they're non-compliant, you have to consider DVT, PE, mechanical heart valve dysfunction, stroke. Noting these patients on the med list and making the ED aware that the patient's on them is of vital importance because it can be a super clue downstream for, for diagnostic factors. When we think about bleeding risk between these two groups, I'll close out here, your bleeding risk on anticoagulation is much higher than on antiplatelets. But from the standpoint of our approach in the pre-hospital setting, just assume both groups are high risk. So that pretty much covers the prescription medications. What about the ones we can go into the grocery store and buy? How about Tylenol and Motrin? So let's start with the easy one first. Tylenol does not affect platelet aggregation. So no increased bleeding risk with Tylenol. Safe there. If you're taking Tylenol for a headache or you're giving it to your daughter for influenza, not an increased bleeding risk as long as you're taking it uh, within the recommended dosage. Now, as a caveat, if you have liver failure from Tylenol toxicity, obviously bleeding can be affected there. But in normal range, no effects. NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, go through a few of those. Motrin, ibuprofen, Aleve, naproxen, meloxicam, Ketorolac, Tordol, when we carry on the truck here at MCHD. These are all reversible cyclooxygenase blockers. So unlike aspirin, which is an irreversible cyclooxygenase blocker, NSAIDs are only active on the platelets if they're in the system. So if you take one aspirin, you inactivate the platelets for the life of those platelets that are in your system. Whereas if I take a Motrin this morning for my headache at 9 a.m., by 9 p.m. when the Motrin's cleared, my platelets are back to normal. So to be at increased bleeding risk from NSAID use, you have to take it regularly. It has to be regular usage. So if someone says, I take a, you know, a Motrin or a Aleve for some back pain on and off here and there, they're probably not at increased bleeding risk. But if they're on meloxicam regularly or they're on a leave regularly, then you can consider that sort of aspirin light. So considering we carry Toradol on the truck, if we have a patient that we think is a surgical candidate, is that something we should be concerned about, shy away from? I would say shy away from is perfect. There's always exceptions to the rules here, but and it's tough for us to predict who's going to surgery from the truck. For example, you know, head injured patients, multi-system trauma patients, we avoid Ketorolac, Toradol in those patients because A, they could be bleeding and we don't want to affect their platelets at all. B, they could have to go to surgery. We don't want to affect, you know, the surgical procedure either. If you're on the fence about it, there, we have other options, right? We can go acetaminophen. We can go narcotics. We can go ketamine. We can go nitrous oxide. I would, I would urge not to get fixated on, oh, I'm not sure here. If you're not sure, Go another route. I think I think that's uh, great advice. Okay. Well, that about covers it. Uh, give us five take-home points on anticoagulants and antiplatelets. So number one, think about, this is going to be one and two together. Think of too much, think of not enough. So when we think of these medications in a too much scenario, too much anticoagulation, too much antiplatelet medication, too much trauma if you're on these medications, think about bleeding from the GI tract, think about bleeding from subdural hematoma standpoint. So if you see an altered patient, we don't know why, you scan that med list, you see Coumadin, you see Apixaban, you see Rivaroxaban, think bleeding. If the patient's supposed to be on these medications and they're not, so if they're supposed to be on Plavix but they can't take it and they call you with chest pain, their risk for ischemia should go way up in your mind. If they are supposed to be on Plavix and they're not, and they call with stroke-like symptoms, their risk of stroke should be higher in your mind. Third, scan the med list for these drugs. Recognition is much more important than pharmacology. And if we want to take home 
some need to know points know really four drugs, right? We can get away with four, four drugs and have this almost 99% taken care of. I'm throwing aspirin out because aspirin doesn't count. We all know that's an antiplatelet medication. But if you know clopidogrel and Plavix, generic and trade, that's an antiplatelet, that's one. Warfarin or Coumadin, that's an anti, anticoagulant, that's two. And then the two new 10A inhibitors are the most commonly used now of the direct oral anticoagulants, and those are apixaban and rivaroxaban. The trade name for those, apixaban is Eliquis, rivaroxaban is Xarelto. So if we know Eliquis, Xarelto, Coumadin, and Plavix, that gets us almost all the way there. All of these medications are more tenuous in patients with liver disease and kidney disease. So another group of patients, Brad, that I would, speaking back to uh, Tordol on the truck, Ketorolac on the truck. I would be aware of Ketorolac or Tordol in patients with liver disease or kidney disease. Any of these drugs are going to be potentiated in these patients because they're not going to clear as well if they have kidney disease, if they have liver disease, their clotting is already compromised. So one thing that I think is a little bit confusing is they say to avoid Ketorolac in patients with kidney disease, but one of the main indicators to give Ketorolac is for kidney stones. So excellent aside here and worth mentioning. If a patient has a kidney stone with 100% obstruction, they still have a normal functioning contralateral side, or they should. In a patient with a solitary kidney with a kidney stone, they absolutely can have acute renal failure from a renal stone. But in a patient with two functioning kidneys, you can entirely obstruct the left side and the right side is going to do the job for you. Think about patients that donate a kidney for transplant purposes. They don't go to dialysis. They walk around and they function normally. Now they have to be careful around things like IV contrast and be careful when they have kidney infections because they only have one. They're basically a you know, functionally a solitary kidney patient, but they don't walk around and, and get dialysis three days a week. So from a kidney stone standpoint, those patients are not in kidney failure. They just have kidney obstruction. And the reason why Ketorolac works well is because it acts directly on the smooth muscle in the ureter and can decrease the pain there uh, pretty effectively. So in that case, it's important to distinguish between kidney failure and kidney stone. Absolutely. Kidney stones in two normal kidney functioning healthy patients does not cause renal failure. So that's four. And then the fifth one, NSAIDs do affect platelet function. Don't forget that. But remember, little like aspirin light, you have to have continued use to have continued platelet dysfunction. Once the drug clears the system, platelets go back to functioning normally. So that is an excellent spot to wrap us up. Thanks everyone out there for listening. If you have questions or concerns, please leave us an email podcast at mchd-tx.org. Also leave us a review, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. More reviews, the more visible we can be. Get us out there, get us heard. Thanks Brad for joining us today and helping out. Yes, sir. Happy to be here. And we'll talk to everyone again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.